Dr. Ryan Stanton here with ASAP Frontline today, joined by Dr. Jim Williams. We're going to talk about some of the indications. We're going to have a two-part series here on the NOACs, or basically those those medicines, the oral anticoagulants we're now seeing. And first podcast here, we want to talk about some of the um, some of the indications for them. Why do you need to consider them? I think we are all kind of going towards. You know, ACS coming in, they get the heparin. We have all these folks that are coming in that are on warfarin, coumadin, um, and then as well as the Lovenox that we've considered. So most of us have been around during those transitions, but now with the oral anticoagulants, we have a new tool in the toolbox for medicine and when we should consider using them and who may not be a consideration for those. So uh, Dr. Williams, thanks for joining me and kind of give me some background of of where you are and, and once again, where this, this interest in these medications. Yeah, so it's um, a really great thing, I think, for emergency medicine. Um, I work at a large uh, level two trauma center at 65,000. We see a lot of uh, chest pain patients um, and of course, uh, AFib that goes along with that for the palpitations. And, and I think these NOACs are a really cool tool for us um, to supplement what we've been doing thus far. It's certainly a whole lot easier than the traditional paradigm of heparin and Coumadin transition. You know, one of the interesting things that I bring up in some of my talks uh, about this is when you look at the three drugs that are the most responsible for complications in the hospital, there's insulin, Coumadin, and heparin. And so why would you stick with two drugs that are causing the most problems of in-hospital errors? And, and now these NOACs give us a tremendous um, amount of diversity and safety, I think, with treating the patient. So the cool thing is for, um, in the emergency department, it helps us for a variety of reasons, whether it's patient turnaround, patient satisfaction, um, patient safety. Um, I think they're a fabulous group of drugs. Um, they've had really six indications now, but for our perspective, the two that we're going to focus on are for AFib and treatment of DVTs, and, and even we're looking at now at outpatient treatment of PEs as well for the low-risk patients. Well, let's give us a background. What are the NOACs? How do they work? And what are some of the, the drugs in this family that we would recognize? Yeah, so it's, it's really a true paradigm shift, and it's sort of tough for people to get their head around that sometimes, that it's a completely different concept. Because when the Coumadin, it's working at multiple different points on the coagulation cascade, these um, agents, and whether you call them uh, novel oral anticoagulants, and in fact they're not novel because they've been around for five years, whether it's target-specific oral anticoagulants, so-called SOACs, um, there are four, soon to be five in the market, and those are Pradaxa, Xarelto, Eliquis, Cervesa, and is soon to be fifth. Um, so they work primarily by either a direct thrombin inhibitor or a factor 10A inhibitor. And that's, it, it makes everybody a little bit crazy when you think about the coagulation cascade. You don't even like to, um, but it's the final common denominator basically of the coagulation cascade. And, and that's why they're so effective because it's not working on multiple factors. The other thing that's really cool about these agents, it's very unique in distinction to Coumadin, is you don't have the drug-to-drug interactions. And so that gives us a much more um, free reign of what we're using. Now, there are some, such as Rifampin or Multac, where you'll have some drug-to-drug interactions, but by and large, it's nothing compared to Coumadin. Um, the other thing is, of course, you don't have the food-to-drug interactions. So that's also adds a big safety component to the issue. Um, And then lastly, speaking overall as a class, uh, the pharmacokinetics are very um, predictable, they're very um, responsive, and they're very fast on, fast off. And so as an example, if I give somebody um, a shot of Lovenox, it might take two hours to get peak plasma concentration. 
well, now with these oral agents, I can give you a pill, and within that same two hours, I'll have a peak plasma concentration. So it's, it's remarkable. The patient, if you ask them, do you want a shot or do you want a pill, you can bet which one they're going to pick. So these medications, they, we have oral, no monitoring. We'll talk about the reversal side of it uh, in the next podcast. When are we going to use these in the emergency department? Because there's not only a role for us recognizing them when we have a medication list for what will happen when they're treated, when they're admitted to the hospital, if they're admitted to the hospital, but there's also a role for these medications, unlike many times the Coumadin and heparin, that we may start these in the emergency department for our patients. What is the role for these medications in the mind of an emergency physician? So these, I think, are a great thing for us. They're typically three places where we can use these. The, the one and the, the clear slam dunk is going to be DVTs. I think this is going to be truly a no-brainer uh, for DVT treatment, um, and I'll expand upon that in a moment. The second is potentially outpatients of low-risk pulmonary embolism, or PEs. You can use things such as a PESI score to identify a low-risk patient um, in whom studies have shown that it's very safe to treat those patients, believe it or not, as an outpatient. And then the third thing, which is going to be a little bit less specific to the emergency um, physician exclusively, but it's going to be in conjunction with a cardiologist or perhaps internist, and that's going to be initiating them with somebody who has AFib. And that could be somebody either who has a new onset AFib, who just came in for palpitations and we're identifying that for the first time, where maybe somebody um, who they're really not um, well, uh, well monitored or well maintained on Coumadin. And, and that's a significant thing because if you look at studies, you realize that up to 50% of the patients who are in a study, and they might have a, a clinical nurse manager watching that patient, and you would think compliance is going to be great, only about 50% of those patients are in a therapeutic window on Coumadin. And so if you have some patients who have, um, uh, whether it's problems with compliance, um, or even for that matter, the drug-to-drug interactions that I mentioned earlier, um, these are going to be agents to actually switch to one of the novel or anticoagulants. These, um, so who's going to qualify? Who, what patients are going to be the ones that these would be a good option to consider? And conversely, who are ones where we may say, eh, let's go with more of a traditional approach or consultant approach or somewhere different altogether? Yeah, so um, a lot of ways to answer that. I think one of the easiest ways, since we're emergency medicine physicians, is uh, just talk about a case that, that I saw. And this was a guy... He was about 45 years old. Um, like you, he was a pilot. He was a commercial pilot. And he came in with um, what was really a nothing. It was one of those things where you walk in the door and you think, oh, this guy has nothing. But he pointed to a little spot on his calf and said, I'm just worried about a DVT, really because he was a commercial pilot. That was his, at that point, his only known risk factor. So it was one of those things where you look at the guy. He was healthy. He does triathlons. He had no comorbidities. He had no medications. And you're thinking, this is going to be a really fast turnaround time for me. But nonetheless, we did the, uh, the study, and surprisingly, he did have a DVT. And so it was interesting. So that generated a whole new um, conversation with the patient to say, so, you know, what are some of your risk factors? Is this provoked, unprovoked? Well, it turns out that his daughter had protein C deficiency. And so although he hadn't been tested, in all likelihood, that was his underlying problem as well that made him hypercoagulable and gave him the DVT. So... With all the patients, I sat down and talked to them and said, look, here, here are your options. We can start you. First of all, we could admit you, put you on a heparin drip, and transition to Coumadin. He wasn't too excited about that. 
we could give you a shot of Lovenox and let you go home, but still you would require bridging therapy and, and all the monitoring that goes with that. He wasn't so happy about that either, also with his active lifestyle. And then there are the novel orontocoagulants. So I think the beauty with that, just as you mentioned, you don't have to monitor. I think it's a huge safety profile. Everybody's worried about the bleeds, but I think that's really more perhaps a, a lack of understanding of the agents or a lack of knowledge because their risk of bleed is decidedly lower across the board with the exception of GI bleeds, and that's a very low rate. Um, and so then lastly, when I told the guy, you can take a pill versus the shot, you know, that, that again was a no-brainer to say, hey. So uh, short answer is for DVTs, uncomplicated, um, which are the majority, the overwhelming majority of patients with DVTs, this is the patient that you're going to treat for the emergency physician. So you can say, here's your pill. It's safe. You can follow up with your um, physician. A lot of the companies do have programs. Believe it or not, you can get the whole first month's therapy for free. So even if you have somebody who's a self-pay, no-pay, that might be the agent actually to go for because it's a safer drug and they don't need monitoring. And we see that um, on our patients. I mean, I, I think the underlying issue or the benefit here is that we're keeping people out of the hospital. We're competing more and more for bed space. Less, you know, we're competing for that healthcare dollar. And keeping somebody out of the hospital decreases their risk, also saves space in the hospital, decreases the healthcare cost, which I think is one of the greatest potential impacts for emergency physicians is the ability to do the things that are necessary to keep people safe, but even more importantly, keeping them out of the hospital, decreasing their costs and their risk factors. So this is one of the considerations here. DVT, low risk, uh, PEs, atrial fibrillation, things like that. Now, are all of these cleared for all, are these four uh, medications, the fifth coming up, are they cleared for these indications or is there somewhere this may still be off label? No, all of them are on label there. Um, they're indicated for the treatment of non-valve AFib, so I should clarify that. If, if somebody has a mechanical heart valve, it's not indicated. But if you're looking at, as an example, somebody who had an echo and it's trace MR, that's still non-valve AFib. So that's one caveat, just non-valve AFib treated for PE, DVT, and also for some prophylaxis of DVT and PE and perioperative uh, therapy for that. So that's really not going to be in our wheelhouse, but I think certainly for the AFib, DVT, and PE, that's going to be the, the folks that we can really help. Um, another patient that, that came to mind, so going to the next part would be outpatient treatment of PE. I think that's sort of still on the tip of the arrow. Not many people would consider that standard of, of therapy, but there's there are some data out there um, that our prospective studies, uh, real clinical trials, in the patients that we see with comorbidities that say if they have an uncomplicated, low-risk um, pulmonary embolism, that that's a patient that you can treat as an outpatient. Um, there's a thing called a PESI score, a P-E-S-I, so just look on your um, MD-CALC app and, and you can pull that up right away. Um, very easy to do and, and that will help risk stratify the patients. Um, one of the, the funny patients that I had with this, it turned out that he was about a 55-year-old man and came in and he was a typical chest pain workup for acute coronary syndrome. So we did the two tropes. We did the, um, the EKGs, of course. They were negative. And um, we did the D-dimer. And, and usually the D-dimer, that can be a hit or miss thing, right? Um, and sometimes it's like, dang it, why did I get that? They're a low risk. Now I got to spin the guy's chest. Well, this guy's D-dimer was, in fact, positive. And even though he was um, low risk, it still wasn't enough to just not do the D-dimer. So we went ahead and did the CTA of his chest, and this guy did have a pulmonary embolism. 
Well, the interesting thing was he also was a pretty healthy guy. So he wasn't tachypnic. He wasn't hypotensive. He wasn't tachycardic. Um, he actually looked pretty good. It was just that he said he had a little bit of, it, he didn't even describe it as pleurisy. But the point was he was not, um, didn't have a lot of comorbidities and he looked pretty good. But he had this pulmonary embolism. Well, this patient was about five years ago. And, and so this was clearly the tip, <laughs> the tip of the arrow. Well, when I started talking to him, he said, uh, okay, well, that, that's good. I understand I have a pulmonary embolism, but I'm not going to be admitted to the hospital. I said, well, what do you mean? You have to be admitted because <laughs> that's what we do for this. You know, you could die from this. And uh, we're talking a little bit more. And so what do you think his career was? What do you think he did as an occupation? It's something we all like to see as an emergency physician. Well, you, t- you got to take a guess. So- oh, I got to take a guess? <laughs> Um, I think the, the good guess is always rodeo clown. I think that's always where you start <laughs> off. If that's not the first thought in your mind, I think you're probably a little bit off base. It, it could be. I mean, I think these two might be synonymous, but this guy was a lawyer. So I think in one respect, you're, you're right. <laughs> well, the- interestingly, I've seen that I think lawyers, when we do, and I'm, okay, we, we're going off the rails. So <laughs> with lawyers that I treat in the emergency department, I think we're able, I think many times we're overly cautious but actually some of the most realistic people that we've seen in the emergency department when it comes to knowing their risks and knowing what they want to do with it. Like I, I had a lawyer as well who basically uh, basically told me that he did not have this condition, that we did not need to keep testing for it, and that he understood the risks and he just wanted us to figure this other thing out for him. And, um, and so, I, you know, I think it's one of those cases where um, they're almost lawyers are almost the best and the worst patients one we fear the most but a lot of times many of them are those that understand more than healthcare folks well it's funny because that's exactly what happened and, and that was what was so cool about this case because it turned out that the guy who you're so fearful of arguably your your worst opponent is now your biggest ally so i talked to him and said okay you have this pulmonary embolism um and at this point, there, there were two drugs on the market, and we said, we do have an option for you. We can give you this as an outpatient. And he didn't want a Lovenox shot, and so we gave him uh, Xarelto. And the, the funny thing was, this was clearly, again, ahead of the times. Um, and you can imagine, you know, now that he's a lawyer, I called him that night. I called him the next day. I called him the next month. So fortunately, he did really well. Um, so it's, it's a really cool story because it does show that um, if you stratify the patients um, correctly, and, and this guy was a low risk, no comorbidities, he didn't have any of the physiologic parameters that were really concerning to any of us with a pulmonary embolism. Um, this is a patient who can be treated as an outpatient and done so safely. And again, I think you, you decrease the healthcare uh, resource utilization. It's safe not only for the drug, but you minimize iatrogenic problems, whether it's a nosocomial infection or bleeds because of problems for bridging within the hospital. Um, and so for that reason, to your point, you're right. He did understand some of the risks, and he was really happy with it. Now, I looked up the PESI score, so PESI, and you're right, MedCalc. It includes the age, gender, cancer history, heart failure, lung disease, or chronic lung disease, heart rate greater than 110, systolic blood pressure less than 100, respiratory rate greater than 30, temperature less than 36, alter mental status, or oxygen saturation less than 90. So basically, if you can sum that up, most of us already realize that. That's the hemodynamically stable patient, those that have a clot or a clot burden that is hemodynamically insignificant, meaning it's not causing physiologic changes, strain on the heart, strain on the lungs. So basically anybody who is relatively low risk with stable 
vitals, hemodynamically stable PE are the ones that are going to be that are going to be low score on the PESI score, and thus be maybe something we can consider for home therapy. And we've actually done that as well. The hospitals I've worked for have been kind of on the cutting edge of saying, hey, this is a low-risk patient. Let's start this therapy. Let's get them out. And the key there, like with anything else with emergent with medicine, is if you have something that potentially could be a higher-risk condition if it were to worsen, we need to have close follow-up. You need to have a plan. So in a hospital, hospital facility or population where you don't have access to, access to follow-up care, you may need to consider keeping them there or having social workers, somebody come in to make sure there's a plan available. But if you're in a hospital that has good follow-up, patients that have a good primary care physician, I think it's perfectly appropriate to do that plan and, and get them home on these therapies. Now, Jim, is there a population where we need to say no go on these oral anticoagulants or, or that also follow-up question to that what are the warnings we're giving these patients when we send them home so uh, let me start with the warnings first because i think it is important to understand that that number one these patients by and large they are fairly sick right we wouldn't be prescribing these medications unless they had comorbidities so obviously the big talk is about bleeding and it's important to inform our patients, you know, what are the specific signs, whether it's um, a nosebleed, uh, whether you have some melana, whether you have some, uh, some uh, whether it's pleurisy or back pain, if you think of retroperitoneal bleed, um, any of those things basically uh, come in and call. Um, also, just to let them know, they will have some bruisability, and, and so you try to balance that. But your default is always going to be, look, if you're concerned about it, you know, we're always here. That's what we do as emergency physicians. Um, and usually that's about a five to ten minute talk I have with the patients because it is an important thing. However, also, I think that even though the follow-up is really important for these patients, again, I want to underscore, I think these drugs are markedly more safe than the Coumadin because you, you don't require the monitoring, and so you don't know if you're going to be super therapeutic or hypotherapeutic. Um, you really don't have to worry about the drug-to-drug interactions. Um, and if they can take one pill a day, or in some cases two pills a day, depending on which agent you use, um, the compliance is really not an issue, and they can get the medication for the first month free. So for that reason, I think the outpatient um, is actually much more safe to use these medications. There is um, one group that I think is a little bit... Um, uh, uncertain perhaps to use, and that would be just the group that has significant renal uh, failure. So there, there are two groups who are a definite no-go, and those would be patients who have a mechanical heart valve, because in all those patients, if you are prescribing it for um, AFib, if they have a mechanical heart valve, those patients you know from some of the uh, early studies have a higher risk of bleed. There's a shear factor for whatever reason. Um, so those patients, you do not want to use these agents. It's contraindication off-label completely. And then the second, um, by and large, it is for uh, renal failure, is by and large um, a contraindication. Now, there are um, two, Eliquis and Zarelto do have, uh, Zarelto has a new indication within the past week, actually, um, with uh, renal compromise. So it is a dose adjustment, um, and they can have some creatinine clearance um, significantly uh, down to 15. Um, but those are patients in whom you just want to be careful about. So the last differentiator of those is looking at among the NOACs. Um, Pradaxa is almost 100% renally excreted, so if those patients have renal compromise, um, you may want to go to one of the others that are hepatically metabolized primarily. And similarly, if somebody has a significant hepatic dysfunction, that's one where maybe Pradaxa is a better one because that's renally cleared. So that's a good consideration to think about is knowing where they are 
and but a, a population a question I just thought up when you're talking about that is I have a lot of patients with that may have chronic kidney disease, but they're actually clearing pretty well. Their their creatinine is within normal limits, and yet they have an acute insult, urinary tract infection, dehydration, diabetes being a big one, type two diabetes, where their numbers are running higher, so they're flushing a whole bunch through their kidneys, and they have a sudden bump in their creatinine. They may have gone from they may have gone from 1.9 or 1 up to about 2.5 or so like that. Are we going to see a huge issue? Are these people going to be bleeding out of their eyeballs when they come into the emergency department? <laughs> no, I don't think it's going to be a significant problem. And so um, it brings up a great point, though, because although you don't need the INR check for the patients, um, what I recommend is anytime you have a clinical change in somebody's parameters, whatever that is, whether it's dehydration, um, I always check uh, what their hepatic and renal function is just for that reason. I don't think in that narrow window you um, necessarily need a dose adjustment because presumably if you rehydrate within 24 hours, that patient's creatinine, you presume, is going to return to normal. So I don't think that's a big issue. Um, and also it underscores, again, the safety of, of the agents too, right? So that even if you have an increased bump, um, you're not going to, as an example that you mentioned, for a brief period, you're not going to see a high rate of bleeds. I think that's going to be low. Um, so to back up on that a little bit, if you look at what the dose adjustment is, it's really a creatinine clearance of 15 to 30 versus 30 to 60. That's a significant delta in, in what their true creatinine clearance is going to be before you have to make a dose adjustment. So if you have a little bump in that, I don't think that's going to be a big thing, but certainly monitor that because it is, if it is persistently high, that's when I would have a dose adjustment in one of the medications. Um, you know, one last thing, though, you brought up the point about the UTI. It's, it's so classic. Um, with the Coumadins, again, this is why I like the NOAX. Uh, a patient came in and they had significant GI bleeds and they were on Coumadin. You check the INR and it's high. Well, why? Because they got Leviquin. Why? For their upper respiratory infection. So to kill the viruses, they got Leviquin. The Leviquin bumped up their INR, they're super therapeutic, and they come in with a GI bleed. And you don't have that drug-to-drug interaction with the NOAX. Or the antibiotics that burn the kidneys. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's a huge one uh, that we see all too often. I mean, the antibiotics, the number one treatment for viruses worldwide, uh, whether none of which are appropriate, but at the same time, something that's all too common. So, Dr. Williams, how, where can we get more information? Because I think this is a good thing, especially if you're still in a facility where you're talking about Coumadins and, and the Lovenoxes and things like that, looking into these medications and knowing what's available uh, in terms of treatments, indications, patient populations, where can we get more information about them? So, um, first of all, at any of the symposiums, since we're here at an ASEP function, i got to put a plug in for some of the ASEP uh, functions and certainly the Scientific Assembly. Great resource. I hope everybody's going to be in Vegas for that. Um, for the computer, uh, though, Medscape has some great resources. Um, if you really want to get into the nuances of the indication, then look at um, the CHEST uh, college. They have, they're the ones who have the guidelines for anticoagulation and who will break it down to level one and level two. And, and the NOACs are level twos for all of these on the same line as the others. Um, so I think those are some, um, some nuanced or some very broad um, areas. And again, you can contact me if you have any questions. I'd love to talk to people because I love to hear people's experiences, whether it's good or bad, and how these fit into treating our patients. What's your email address? So it's drjmwilliams at gmail.com. drjmwilliams at gmail.com. You can also contact me, ryanstantonmd at gmail.com. That's ryanstantonmd.com at gmail.com. Dr. Williams, once again, thank you for your time. So we're going to have a two-part series here. And though we recorded this one second, we're going to put it up to bat first. And so you'll hear about 
the indications for it. And then in the next podcast, you're going to be, be able to hear about some of the complications, the contraindications, we mentioned contraindications, but also some of the possibilities of reversal that are out there dealing with people who come in with bleeding episodes that are on these medications, the risks, considerations, and how you deal with it. But until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASEP Frontline. Thank you.